Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and Conscious Construction starts right now. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm Busy Gold, and I'm here with Commander Mark Devine. You did it. Of course I did it. He's just Mark Devine. If you were sitting with here, I'd be calling you Medicine Man Devine. That's what I would nickname I like you that. personally. I like Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Busy. It's great to see you. Yeah. Came this all the way is out a... to San Diego to visit me. You're worth it. All right. You're worth it. And for those of you that got to see, this is going to be one of the first reverse interviews that I've done where I've been interviewed and now I'm being the interviewer, which is a pretty unique perspective for me to have. So I'm glad that I get to... We're going to have a lot to talk about because we've already gotten through, you know, the surface level stuff. Yes. I don't know how surface level your interview was, but (laughs) you're not exactly a surface level kind of guy. No, I try not to skim the waves too much. No, and that's part of what I like most about you. So I want to dive right into the book, which I'm grateful to have received an advanced copy. It's fantastic, called Staring Down the Wolf. And immediately when I took a look at the book, I thought of the Native American philosophy or, you know, just imagery of having the two wolves and you kind of pick which one you want to feed. So I wasn't surprised to see that that was in the very beginning, the first image that, you know, is brought into the reader's mind. So having said that, you do talk about how there's the fear wolf and the courage wolf and that the fear wolf likes to kind of rise up and take a dominant position, but that the courage wolf really all that's required is for it to be fed. So I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners what these food sources might be. Sure. Well, I think it'd be helpful to back up and provide a little context for even why the book came to be called that way. Okay. Uh, I didn't actually select that title, which is kind of interesting because I love the title. But I was um, kind of writing a book about just kind of Navy SEAL kick-ass leadership. That's what my publisher wanted me to write. And so I was calling it the seven commitments that forge elite teams, which is now the subtitle. I feel like that often happens. Yeah, and I um, I was trying a process which didn't work very well, but it was an interesting process where I would spend, you know, I I conceived of the whole book um, in the meditation. And then I came, you know, then I, uh, the seven commitments came to me, which are, you know, virtues or, or, you know, qualities of like real authentic leadership, like heartfelt qualities of, you know, things like courage, trust, respect, you know, like what makes a really good leader and what makes a team really gel around a leader and then be able to really dominate. And, um, and so I hired a writer through a great company called Scribe who could um, capture my voice and then kind of save me time by spinning it back to me. And so every, every chapter I would meditate, contemplate, and I do all that internal work. And then after every one of those sessions, I would just write notes. And I ended up with like 10 pages or 20 pages of notes for each chapter. And then I'd get on the phone with this guy, John, and he would interview me. And I would go through, I would make sure all these points came out and all the stories that I could think about. And as part of my notes, I had stories written down that I would want to talk about. It's a very different process. Incidentally, I don't write well like that, I noticed. And so what I got back ended up having to be rewritten, but it was a really cool process. But now my point was, about halfway through, what he sent me suddenly had the title Staring Down the Wolf on it. And I was like, oh... Interesting. And he had gotten that because my book, Unbeatable Mind, has, you can't see it, the listener, but this picture of myself, like, staring at a wolf. And that's the idea of staring down your wolf of fear, like you mentioned, and feeding courage. And I said, I love that title, but this book is about the seven commitments that forge elite teams. You know, where does this idea, how does this idea of staring down your negativity come, you know, come into play? So... I went back to the meditation bench, and that's where I conceived of the actual book. But sometimes books kind of write themselves. And the actual book... I would is, argue that the best books always write themselves. They do, yeah, exactly. Like, it just needed to be written. If I had done the original, it would have been okay. 
But this way, now we have kind of this yin-yang, this, um, the, the light side is here's how perfect looks, but we know there's no such thing as perfect in leadership or in anything in life. So here's the shadow side. Here's the, the dark energy or the negative side. When it almost seems that staring down the wolf is, in fact, the obstacle to achieve That's these right. seven it's commitments. It's exactly right. And so I tell the, 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 the perfect virtuous warriors going out and kicking ass and take names, taking names, those stories are like SEAL leaders like Admiral McRaven who got bin Laden, you know, and these amazing leaders who had a lot of experience and then the person who's staring down the wolf through their fuck-ups is me. I like <laughs> so that. I, tell, I, I tell how I screw up pretty much every one of these commitments, but I'm getting better and better as I evolve in my own leadership capacity and my own shadow work over the years until where I'm now finally able to bring all those commitments to bear in my current company, which is unbeatable and, and seal fit. So that's kind of how the, that's how the title came about and how the book evolved to be what it is today. And it's a much better book, and I'm super proud. And I had to be really vulnerable in it, way more than any of my earlier books, where I completely expose, you know, my imperfections and many flaws and, you know, how I had to stare down the wolf. And to your original question, you know, the human being is wired with a negativity bias. Most people listening kind of know that by now, but they don't really appreciate how big of an impact it has on their life. Would you say, just to give a little bit of context, since my listeners have, mm-hmm. a, I would say, a pretty large scope of understanding of some of these things, do you think the negativity bias has any sort of relation to perceived safety or feeling of being safe? For sure. It's all, in my experience and research, it's all based upon just how the human brain evolved and how we take in information and process it really quickly with what Kahneman would call your system one brain, which is all your subconscious, which is subconscious mind. All information comes in. It's processed by your amygdala, and that's looking for, like, sniffing for, you know, opportunity or good, and it's going to move toward that, or negativity or fear-based things or something that's a challenge, and then you're going to move away from that. that and so the positive aspect like moving toward, you know, the, the woman in the tent next door <laughs> back in the caveman days, right? Or the okay. teepee next door. Tent, you know, that's the an cave, opportunity. The so that's next gonna, door. Right, that's going to change. It's going to send a certain uh, neurosignals and neurochemical releases that, you know, like dopamine and oxytocin. And the next thing you know, you know you're in a, in a cool relationship. But um, that's, that's like one-fifth is rare. So you have, I don't know if that math is right, but you have five times as much negativity negative reaction when the amygdala is triggered. And so that, that then turns on, um, y- you know, your parasympathetic nervous system, which then injects all the stress hormones into your body, which puts you in fight, flight, or freeze. So, of course, that was built, that system was built and very useful when we were, you know, running away from lions and like tigers and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> right? But now, you know, the last time I had to run away from a, a lion or a bear, it was in my head. And I, there is a story there, and I actually did run away from a bear in my head once. <laughs> um, but that, would, true, was like a false fear. And so modern fears and modern negativity is, is usually, you know, created by the individual. Stuff like time-based stress. Mm-hmm. Maybe you experienced a little bit of that running late today or something like that. <laughs> trying to say it was late? I'm just kidding. Anytime I'm it was it was occurring to me where I was like, I said I was going to be there at 10:30. Is he like a 15 minutes earlier than 10:30 kind of guy? You're fine, right? But my, you know, I have that when you know if I'm running really late, I start to feel this kind of arising of this energy, and it's the same thing as Amygdala saying, sending some stress hormones because that's a threat, but it's not really a threat. It's just a story of, you know. Any what other what time it means to me, like, happened. am I a good person or a bad person? Am I not? Am I being unprofessional or disrespectful? Really is, I'm just not on the timeline. Something happened, and so it's no big deal. But then you trigger the stress, and you can think about all these things that trigger that stress response. But it goes deeper than that. So stress can also be triggered through um, negative conditioning. So in negative conditioning, we call it reactionary negative pattern or conditioning, and that. And that conditioning can come from any real setback in life, but most dramatically from early childhood trauma. 
And we talked about this a little bit on our podcast. So all that then forms what I call your background of obviousness. So you have biases that are hardwired that have negative proclivity to them. You have childhood trauma, which then gets either uh, repressed or you know, you're in uh, some sort of projection mode about that. And it gets um, a story wrapped around it. That story is generally negative, fear-based story. And then you grow up with this, and, and these are largely hidden from your view. That's why I call it your background of obviousness. It's, it's obvious to everybody else because they're experiencing the benefits of your shadow. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in a lot of ways, their shadow is addicted to dealing with your shadow. Yeah, because you guys are involved in the, in the cycle dance, together, right? most definitely. <laughs> that would be a good title for a book, wouldn't it? Shadow dance. <laughs> shadow dancing. How do you? How does the two you know, interplay of shadows kind of? I refer to that cycle in my work as symbiotic dysfunction. So that would be a good one. Yeah. Shadow dancing, the art of symbiotic that. dysfunction. Yeah. So all that is basically um, fear wolf stuff. Negative biases, negative reactionary conditioning, and also just the way that your brain physiologically and psychologically processes uh, a stimulus that it identifies as fear. And as I mentioned earlier, we have at that, just at that surface level five times as much fear-based reaction happening in our brains that, than we do something that's you know, positive or courage-based. So this, this is what's running our lives. You know, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, 50,000 or 45,000 the same as yesterday, and five times as many negative as positive thoughts and emotions. So I have a question for you because I bump into this in my work relatively frequently, where people might listen to what you just said and they're like, whatever, like I don't experience that much fear, right? right yeah. It doesn't happen to me. Well, I'm more of a, you know, I, I tend to get more sad or I get more angry. Could you delve in a little bit deeper about how sometimes our brain as a protective reflex will almost create a false narrative or masquerade yeah. our fear as an alternate emotion? Yeah, I love that because I talk about masking in the book. When we create a story to wrap around a, a unpleasant experience, so let's say we have an experience where maybe I get bullied or um, because in my family, you know, my, I had a lot of anger from my father and then alcohol has run through my family. And so communication was really kind of stunted. I, I learned to be very codependent and very silent and I didn't trust you know, my communication. And so that played out in me and like <laughs> literally one relationship after another with women just getting torched because they're like, I can't even be with this guy because he won't say anything. You know, <laughs> what are we doing here? And um, so there, you know, there was this negative story that I had to wrap around in early age that I wasn't worthy of being in a, a nurturing, you know, vulner what, what Brene Brown would call vulnerable or heart-centered uh, relationship with a woman. I didn't know how to do it. And so um, I just didn't think I was worthy of being loved or of being in a relationship like that. It was totally false. But there was pain that I attached a story to, and that turned into a way that I behaved. Right, it was like an adaptation. It became an adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so I behaved a certain way, which is very um, kind of destructive for me because I went through a lot of suffering until I kind of figured that out, you know? And this can play out in so many different ways. Ultimately, you know, the sense of self is constructed. It's a construct of the mind, right? One of our meditative practices is to ask, who am I, right? To get a sense of what is this thing called self? And when you start, you know, identifying all the things like, am I my body? No, I'm not my body, right? Am I, well, even beyond that, am I my cars or my MBA, my CPA or my business or the money in the bank? I'm none, I'm none of those. And I'm, if I'm not my body, then what am I? Well, maybe I'm my emotions, well, not really my emotions. Maybe I'm my thoughts. No, I'm not really my thoughts either. There's something beyond emotion, beyond thought that is, that is an experience of being alive in here, you know. And then maybe I'm my stories, which are a combination of thoughts and emotions and how I construct my reality. philosophy mm -hmm. and reality. And I'm like, well, I'm not really my stories either. So if I'm not any of that, that can be very liberating because then you ask yourself, well, who am I? I'm something much more, much more eternal, much more timeless, and also beyond the limited construct of the egoic cell structure. That then becomes an opportunity 
to rewrite your stories. Because when you get to that realization, it doesn't mean you stop being busy or stop being Mark, because we have this kind of localized experience in this lifetime. But it's an opportunity to be the best version of busy or Mark that you could be. And, and to have that be something that's constantly Right, and that's and when you get super duper motivated to do the shadow work, because you're like, you know what? I see that I'm not that, but that pattern keeps coming up. And so I got to do something about it. I got to do some work on that. And that's where therapy and EMDR and all the, you know, the rich practices of emotional, the Western psychology has really brought some enormously beneficial practices to clear that stuff up, to rewrite your story. Super critical. Yeah. So I'm still working on my story, by the way. Like well, and I love that you were sharing that this has been the most vulnerable book that you've you've actually brought out there to the public. And I think that says a lot for your personal growth and development, because often when we're still working through things and we still, when things that have come up in the past might still bring up guilt or shame or remorse or mourning or things like that, we're often less likely to want to share them publicly until right. we've processed them. So I think it just is a testament yeah, to how much you process. to put a book out there, right? Mm-hmm, and absolutely. to put a book out there that shows how screwed up you are is even harder. But I think it is the sign of a, a true leader, right? Without, we were even talking about that when we were grabbing coffee, that even in the context of bringing, teaching these leadership skills to a group setting like a corporation, as a leader, a lot of leadership trainings will essentially even just, let's take it back to just like sheer organizational communication, not really even dealing with leadership at all. There are these certain hoops they're supposed to jump through to, you know, be an air quotes good leader. Often transparency is not high, highly regarded on that list, right? If you were to take an organizational communication class at, in college, they wouldn't tell you, share all of your early childhood traumas with your staff. Probably be like the lowest rung on the list. And yet when you find this point of intersection between kind of these spiritual practices and your life experiences and psychology with organizational communication, you can see that transparency with your staff, obviously done in the right way, not dumping your problems on your staff, but, you know, leading by example can actually be something that levels the playing field Mm -hmm. and helps your group bond together instead of create these power dynamics that are not useful. Completely agree with you. In fact, that kind of frames the, um, the first three of the commitments, courage, trust, and respect, and then the rest um, build from that. Growth right, ensues when you have the courage to be transparent and to approach leadership with humility and to relentlessly follow through on your word. Like Those are three of the principles that I talk about in regard to how do you develop trust built on this courageous belief that, hey, I'm not perfect, and I'm willing to take a risk, right, for my own, um, you know, ability to really authentically lead this team, right? I can't, I can't put the mask on of perfection or authoritarianism. I have to be authentically connected at a heart level. That takes a lot of courage because that's where the work begins, really. And then from there, trust is developed because my team is going to say, you know what? Wow, Mark's coming at it at this um, relationship admitting everything that goes wrong and taking responsibility even for the team's failures and saying, hey, you know what, I kind of messed that one up or how could I do this better? You know, it's a very different conversation and it develops great trust. Trust is like the glue that holds the team together. And then after trust comes respect. And how many leadership situations you see where people are getting things done, but no one's really respecting each other, the way they communicate and the gossiping and you know, that they'll have, you know, one face with the leader and then behind the back they'll go, you know, what a jerk. Or I can't believe, you know, that guy is putting so much work on me or whatever. He doesn't see me for who I am. So those three, courage, trust, and respect, you know, form like the, the kernel of how an elite team can really flourish. And then that makes, like I mentioned earlier, makes the leader and the team extremely motivated to do more work. And then the workplace, that team environment, becomes the petri dish for growth. So instead of thinking personal growth is, oh, I'm going to go do Mark's Unbeal Mind class at night when I get home or squeezing the cracks of my life. No, you go to work, and that becomes that is where you your go. growth vehicle. Everyone there is having crucial conversations, like we were talking about earlier, and calling each other out and saying, hey, you know what? I, what you just said didn't land very well with me, and it hurt me. And so let's clear the air on this, right? Let's figure it out. And then you're going to go, boy, I really 
didn't mean that. And maybe there's a shadow issue because this has been a recurring pattern of mine. And then I get to go work on that with the support of everyone else and everyone seeing that you're doing the work brings even more trust. And that is growth. You know, you grow, the team grows together through each other. Right? We don't really grow by sitting home alone, you know. No, then it's all theoretical. You can it's read all, all the personal development books at home, but if you're not actually out there yeah, living, mess, interacting, you it's get messy theory. and, you know, mess up in relationships. That's where the growth happens. Do you find a correlation, knowing your yogic background and mine, when I was looking at the seven commitments, I couldn't help but notice some level of alignment with chakra development, yeah. specifically from the socio-emotional side. Was that something that was top of mind when you were creating the commitments in the order that they were in? It's really interesting you say that because you're right. They do kind of flow along the, you know, as you move up the chakras, because mm -hmm. courage really is kind of a root level thing. Absolutely. And then... And even how you just, you you said like the lower, you even kind of distinct, distinctly organized the lower three versus the uppers, which right. to me, you know, anahata, the heart chakra right. is kind of that zero point interruption where you right. start to, instead of think about survival things, you right. think about bigger pictures, so... Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't have that in mind, but I noticed afterwards, you know, how they lined up. And it, and it made sense to me because I mentioned that the structure of the book kind of came out of a meditation. Um, and... When I twice, right? First was the original, and then was the staring down the wolf version. And, and the staring down the wolf version, um, I really brought in um, integral theory and developmental psychology. And my version of the um, different stages of development is very simplified, and it's what I teach, um, you know, our, in our Unbeal Mind program. And that is very, very much almost aligned—not very almost, but it's very much aligned with the chakra system. Absolutely. Right? In the first. The first plateau or level, I conflate, you know, like Wilbur's bottom three magic method, mythic, and I forget what else, um, into what I call the survivor mode. And, you know, we all know leaders who are kind of operate one crisis to another or, you know, something's always wrong. And there, you know, you could be super, you could be Mensa level intellect and still at a survival level plateau. And often the mental level people are at Often the they are because they don't think they have to do, they think everything's yeah. cool because I'm this genius yeah, I'll cognitively it out. I'll it out. and they never, ever investigate the emotional development or intuitive or spiritual development. So they're lopsided. And then, you know, just because I mentioned this, I'll go through real quick without trying to teach this stuff. But the second plateau is the, um, someone um, who is really prone to just identify with their, their local tribe their local ethnic, you know, ethnicity, their even their family, or their country, but everyone else is wrong, mm -hmm. and they're going to protect that status quo. So you find like forty percent of American population is in this in this protector category. Maybe thirty. I'm not sure if it's exactly forty percent. I think forty percent is actually the next one. So this is going to be more like twenty to twenty-five percent. So you find a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of you know first responders, even a lot of military members. Uh, in this kind of, and a lot of um, Republican conservatives kind of fall into this protector. Now, these um, stages of development aren't like a hierarchy necessarily. It doesn't mean that one's better or worse because we have all these energies inside of us, just like we have all the chakras inside mm -hmm. of us, right? We can easily, you and I could easily get snapped back into survivor mode if someone, you know, comes through the door with a weapon. Yes. <laughs> right? Don't worry, I, I got I would your click, six click into my protector mode, you'd be like, ah! <laughs> You would just disappear as a yogi, right? <laughs> so every, you know, these all exist. Like we all have a protector, but there's a shadow side of the protector and there's the light right side of the protector. There's a shadow side of the survivor and there's light side of the survivor. So you want to eradicate the shadow and to bring out the, like for the, uh, the light side of the survivor mechanism is, you know, the courageous warrior, right? Who's going to courageously face whatever survival situation they're in or whatever crisis they're in and just plow through it. Then the third plateau is very familiar with most people. We call it the achiever. And this is like the entrepreneur, the corporate CEO. Tons of my clients are achiever. I was in the achiever uh, uh, plateau for many years, and I still have a strong dose of it. But the shadow side of achiever is greed, and it's lopsided achievement, where, which comes at the expense of somebody else or, or humanity or Mother Earth. Like we were talking about you guys starting a farm. That is a beautiful thing because you're taking responsibility for being back in balance with Mother Earth yourselves, which is going to help Mother Earth heal and also provide a model for others on how to do that. 
when we our entire economic system right now is completely out of balance because it's linear, it's extraction model. It is, it is the shadow side of the achiever. And it's finite. Linear, it's finite, linear, right? it's, and it's therefore based finite. upon not on a model or a mindset of abundance, but on scarcity. And it, it's truly broken, in my opinion. And it's it's the it comes from forty percent of our population being driven as these achievers and then creating organizations that have an outsized impact, putting their shadow into the world. And so organizations the way they do you know, project shadow is through pollution or mm-hmm. degradation of the environment or the air or whatever, you know, name your poison, so to speak. So we wanna eradicate that That's shadow. A whole separate we we wanna be achievers, <laughs> but we wanna achieve from a higher stage of development. The fourth plateau I call the pluralist. This is someone who is more world-centric and connected to their heart, but they haven't um, really broken free to where um, they're at a a level of connection. This is where it starts to get more spiritual. They haven't um, developed kind of a a world-centric connection or all-sentient being connection. So if you're an achiever or a pluralist and you start to develop spiritual practices, then very quickly you can ascend to the fifth plateau, which I call the integrator. Mm-hmm. Integrator has no separation between me and others, me and the environment. It's like we are all in this together. And a lot of the spiritual traditions point to that experience of awakened state. So the awakened state can or has to exist, at least partially, it doesn't have to be fully stabilized at the integrator level or else you're not going to be at the integrator level. For those of you that have listened to a bunch of my other podcasts, there was a whole section that I taught about this concept with two, I gave the visual of two gummy bears that are different um, colors melted together. Nice. Right? So they had that visual, and then I also talked to them about, you know, a set of Siamese twins, one of which desires to eat mostly raw fruits and vegetables, likes to practice yoga, and then the other one that likes to do lines of cocaine and (laughs) smoke cigarettes, right? They're both connected. One's behavior and choices will affect the other without option. And the sooner that we can realize as sentient beings that we essentially all have that connection energetically and that our choices are not actually individual, they do have large-scale impact. That's, that would be, if you're looking for a visual, think that's about great, all of us I melted together as gummy bears. As a, way, as a teaching aid, and that's a good one. The, you know, the metaphors that I use when I um, go into my meditative practices with my clients, there's three that really, really help them. One, and you might have heard these before, so one of them is that we all exist at a connected level as if we were like the ocean. We all have equal wetness in us. But we also have a wave-like quality where, like, my wave is completely different Different. than your wave. And it rises, and it goes through 100 years maybe, in my case, hopefully 150, maybe longer as a yogi. And then it crashes. (laughs) I'm trying to live that yogi's life. It crashes onto the beach and, and disappears back into the water again. And it's that water wetness that is the same in all of us. That's a beautiful metaphor. And you're like, oh, yeah. And you can kind of... When you start meditation, you start to experience or taste that wetness that exists in all of us. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't mean water wetness. I'm talking about the that primordial, like the soul, the nature. soul essence that yeah, has a same similar nature. quality. Mm-hmm. And it exists in all things, not just humans, right? All things. The second metaphor is as if all of us are the sun, but each individual experience that we're having this local lifetime is like a ray of the sun. That's inseparable. If you think about it, like the sun and the ray, they're two different things, but they're inseparable. Mm-hmm. They're made of the same thing. One of them's permanent, one of them's temporary. And the third is almost like uh, very similar, but using a different element. Notice how these elements really work well for us. Oh yeah. So water, sun. Now, it's uh, wind. So we are all like air, and but air has it moves, and we experience air as wind or a breeze. And so, like, the air and this quality of all of us is the same, but when the wind blows, it's always different. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So that's a great way to metaphorically think about this idea of um, wholeness, integration, lack of separation that happens when we stabilize at the fifth plateau. And it's also very similar to um, experiencing life, you know, from the seventh chakra perspective. Absolutely. Which is, you know, connected to cosmic universal intelligence or God. 
So it's really neat to see us have some language, and I'm very grateful for teachers who've helped me understand this language, both my yoga and Tibetan Buddhist meditation teachers, as well as uh, philosophers like Ken Wilber, who really opened my mind about how developmental psychology really plays out, and, um, and some language around, um, you know, what does it mean to be sucked down into these different levels, and also how, like, these levels are in all of us, but we evolve through them in what we call a transcendent include manner or a holarchic manner. So it's like I said, when I'm operating at the integrated kind of spiritual perspective, I still have the survivor, the protector, the achiever, and that fourth plateau we call the equalizer. I still have all those aspects in me. And because I'm operating at that integrated perspective, now I can I can kind of travel that and use it as an assessment tool while I'm in conversation and say, oh my gosh, yes, this individual I'm in, I'm not you, but if I let's yeah, say like I'm meet somebody in conversation with someone who's very staunch, you know, like a lot of my SEAL buddies are still staunch second plateau protectors and they're awesome people, but um, I, I get that they're not likely to step into a yoga studio with me. I used to have that with some of my SEAL fit coaches. Great guys, they're great on the you know, on the grinder, you know, coaching other individuals and teams to unlock potential. But a lot of the concepts that I'm talking about were just completely foreign to them and were a threat to their worldview. So I could then, you know, if I wasn't at a f- integrated plateau, then I, I would probably try to force my ideals on them. But because and I then, am, I can travel. Be as integrated yeah, I can travel the stages and say, okay, you know, I, I understand where this person's at, and so I'm going to have a conversation from their perspective. Like Stephen Covey said, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And also because everything that you do from that perspective, that world-centric fifth plateau perspective, is for the benefit of hu- humankind, then every conversation, every interaction with another human being is an opportunity to elevate consciousness to leave an, a positive impact in the world, like you said earlier. We, everything we think and everything we do ripples out and affects you know, the matrix of humanity. So why not use every interaction, every moment, as an opportunity to evolve humanity? I think that's actually one of the most important things for just the average person to hear right now. Because I think media particularly has been using this like social justice piece and helping humanity. I, I look at it as like a new Gucci bag yeah. where instead of it's a fourth plateau equalizer perspective that has a lot of shadow. Exactly. Because yeah. So they this demonize is... anyone who's not right there with them, believe in every word they say. Right. Yes. And I, what you were saying, which is that every interaction that you have with anybody is an opportunity to help up level consciousness rather than, because I think a lot of the people that perceive themselves to be trying to up level consciousness, they're doing it in a specific way, like only in this way so that I can get praise for it, only in this way because I'm actually protesting. But then they miss all of these amazing minute to minute opportunities to raise consciousness just in their community or at home. Right. I think that's a huge missed opportunity. And a lot of times doing it with lower level energy, you know, so like attacking people that you don't think are worthy of, you know, or they're not worthy because they don't agree with your point of view. Let's take climate change as an example, Mm -hmm. right? So just because a lot of people don't believe in the climate change models or that humans are the, you know, the source of it all doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just a belief. Whether it's right or wrong is irrelevant, actually. And so a lot of people coming at it from that equalizer perspective and what's projected in the media as good is actually has a negative impact because they're demonizing or, you know, classifying, judging, categorizing, and then putting down anyone who doesn't agree with them. Right, because they're not yet in that integrated perspective where they they can can actually move through cognitive dissonance. They don't have access to see that level or that stage of development because they're looking from the perspective. They're kind of seeing almost like that just straight duality. If I'm right, then you're inherently wrong. wrong. And another way to look at that from the um, perspective of kind of the staring down the wolf is that um, they've done uh, work at an intellectual level, cognitive level. They understand things cognitively, but they don't understand things emotionally from their heart, intuitively and spiritually, which is that kind of embodied whole mind individual. So the fifth plateau or someone who embodies, truly embodies the seven commitments um, 
we'll have, you know, this experience that the integration occurs across intellect, emotion, intuition, and spirit. In Unbeatable Mind, we call it the five mountains. So we train, literally, everyone trains every day, physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually with the idea of integrating all those aspects into your being so that you can live from this perspective of whole mind at that fifth plateau, world-centric. It definitely matches with the koshas, too. Even just, I, I always teach that. It does, yeah. Right? Because you're for you to actually, you can see the koshas, for those of you that know what we're talking about. Often they're written in a diagram either one of two distinct ways, either with the atma in the center, mm-hmm. right, with the koshas surrounding mm-hmm. them, or with the atma on the outside with the koshas going in. And internal. both are accurate. Both are accurate. I can, right. right, and really, it's kind of more like a donut, right, right? where the atma is both internal and external, yeah, wrapping the koshas. So it's a kosha donut. I'm sure a lot of yogis would roll over in their graves having heard me say that it's a kosha donut. But essentially, that's what it is, right? Our, our soul experience is able to fully embody all five of these koshas by way of actually using each one of them intentionally and making sure that they're integrated. Right. It's great. I love that you do that. Most people are living as the donut hole itself. Right. You're just (laughs) staying into the center. (laughs) I used to get those from Dunkin' Donuts when I was a kid. That's been a long time. a long time. So let's shift gears for one second because... I want to tie on a couple other things that I got to just read about you in the book that are not surprising, but a lot of the moments that we talked about in my interview had to do more with what I would call plot twist moments where you didn't see them coming and completely changed your course in life. So I did find it interesting that I never would have seen it coming that you were a Wall Street guy in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I saw that that was where you actually found your Zen practice. Mm-hmm. So could you just share with our listeners how you found your Zen practice and what yeah, that experience absolutely. actually did to change so, your course in life? When I was in college, I had a freshman roommate um, who, named Dave Bowman, great guy, I haven't seen him since, who got into Shotokan Karate while, you know, while he was a freshman. And then I tracked his progress through the four years I was at Colgate University, and he changed, right? He, he was a very different person when he left, in good ways. And I took up, I was there to swim competitively. I was recruited to Colgate to swim. And so when I graduated, I was older. I had some travel experiences, and, you know, but I didn't change in the way that David had changed. So I logged that mentally. I'm like, interesting, what's going on? with that. When I went to New York, uh, right after college, I I was like six weeks later, I was down in Manhattan at NYU uh, Business School, Stern School of Business, to get my master's in accounting, which is part of my work. I was hired by Coopers and Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, to be an auditor, of all things. (laughs) I had not taken an accounting degree. Colgate didn't even offer any of them, but the program was to hire um, liberal arts grads. I was an economics major from these top Northeastern universities, and there were 70 of us from different schools like college, uh, Harvard, uh, Williams, Yale, Princeton, and Colgate, and a bunch of others. And so we were all going to go to NYU to get our master's degree, and then we work for Cooper's and Library and Arthur Anderson, the different big eight firms. And um, so anyways, now I'm, and, and we're, we had to go into work on Fridays, and then in September of that year, this is 1985, we were going to go work full-time and just do night school. So it was like part work study, but full-time during the summer, is night school during the main year, and then we'd get our master's. And I ended up rolling into the MBA program to get my MBA in finance, which took me an extra year. So because I was super athletic and I loved being outdoors, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I'm in a suit and, you know, all this busyness going on. I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I'm going to end up looking like a lot of these people in a few years. Right. What I'm saying is pasty and out of shape and unhealthy yeah. and miserable. It's like, I refuse to do that. Can't be, you know, there's got to be another way. And this is 85, right? Way be, you know, like nowadays, there's so much information because of the internet and, and all sorts of programs like what you and I have created where people can stay really healthy in these white collar jobs. But back then, it was the martini lunch and, you know, everyone was out of shape and unhealthy. I refused to be that person. So I started a program where I'd get up every morning and run through Prospect Park, like six miles. And then at lunchtime, when everyone went to their martini lunch, I would go to the gym and I'd you know, crank out 
what was then my version of a functional fitness workout. And I had one hour to do it, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it was very you know, precise and quick. And then um, I was like, I had a little bit of time. This is actually when I started school or work during the day and school at night. I had a little bit of time between when I had uh, finished work and had to be at NYU, which was down at the World Trade Center, down before you know the World Trade Center came down. And so um, I was just pondering what I would do in what I could do in that time period. I didn't want to run again. I didn't want to go to gym again. And I remembered about Dave. And so I was just kind of like for a couple of weeks thinking maybe I could get into martial arts and. One night I was walking home and I was walking down 23rd Street and I heard all this shouting coming from this upstairs kind of window and I look up and there's a big flag. I'm standing right under a big flag that said World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I was like, oh, it's a sign, right? Mm-hmm. I've got to do this or I've got to go check it out. So I went upstairs and I saw this, this Japanese guy who was, you know, he was short, but he was really, really strong, about 40 years old. And he had this like unique presence about him that I couldn't put my finger on right away, but I, you know, I later came to see it as you know, enlightened master. He was a Zen master who was teaching his Zen through the martial arts, a classic karate do, which is like a way of development. There was, there's nothing in it in America or the West that is equivalent to the old do way of, of developing an individual because it would develop them physically, mentally, emotionally, Yeah, it goes about it, that kosher approach. Right, that, mm-hmm. with the kosher approach, exactly, the integration. And uh, very few um, masters ever came to the West to teach who could teach that way. And I happened to stumble upon one. His name was uh, Tadashi Nakamura, and we called him Kaicha, which meant grandmaster. So, you know, I started training karate, but we would sit in Zen uh, posture for about three minutes before and after every training session, and then... I noticed that there was a longer, um, there was a session or uh, Thursday nights there was a class called Zen Meditation. I was like, hmm. And only a few black belts would go to this class, or like eight or ten. We had hundreds of students in the studio, but there were like eight or ten who would go to this class. And I asked if I could go, and he said, sure. So every Thursday night I started to do my Zen practice, and we would sit for 45 minutes. And it was very much like Zen boot camp. Right? It was hardcore, just concentration training to really just tame the monkey mind. And the rest was kind of on our, on our own. There was no instruction about what to do after that. And so I, had, I went through this. Like, I, I did this for four years. Extremely cool process because the first year was all just like, I can't do this. I'm taming, my, you know, fighting, fighting, fighting to try to, like, concentrate on just one thing, which is the breath. He had me count, like, inhale, exhale, count one, inhale, exhale, count two. But if you think, you go back to zero, and you do not collect $200. Like, <laughs> you just go back to zero, and it's really frustrating. If anyone really has never done concentration training, when you start doing this, it's an eye-opener, so to speak. And because um, it's very difficult to even get past one or two. Well, I think most people don't realize how loud their internal space right. is until they try to quiet it. Because I think they're used to kind of checking out and not even listening to it. It's just kind right. of there's background noise. They're always distracting themselves with some sort of mental process, right? Mm-hmm. Rumination. You know, the default mode is basically rumination. And people loop around and fantasize. And your mind's going all over the place. So you've trained your mind to just basically bounce all over the place. That's what the Buddhists call the monkey mind. So the antidote to that is to concentrate on one thing. You, and this is why a lot of people fail at meditation. They think, I'm just going to go meditate. And so they just sit there and ruminate, you know, continue what they've been doing, but they do it with headspace on or something like that, right? And then they're like, I can't do this. Right? It's difficult. Or they get really good at, like, mindfulness, and mindfulness is where you develop a metacognitive ability to watch your thoughts and be like, oh, yeah, I see that. But then they don't do anything with the negative patterns that they keep seeing arise. And I had a yoga teacher once tell me that, you know, if you're an asshole and you meditate for 20 years, you might be just a more focused asshole by the time you're done. I've met a lot of those. Yeah, I think I've met a few of those, too. So anyways, you know, I, I go down these little rabbit holes. So back to your question. So there I was. Newly minted, you know, I'm um, getting my master's degree now, moving into the MBA program. I'm working on my CPA exam, which is a pain in the ass. I'm working full time, going to school at night, but I'm committed to go to this karate class. And I would go six times a week, you know, if I could. And every Thursday night to the Zen meditation. And I started to experience my mind getting more and more focused. 
and um, I was more and more relaxed. And also I started to have a lot of insights come up while I was sitting. And so I would be like, concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. You know, it took me like 20 minutes. And finally, I would be really concentrated. I could get to like seven or eight. And then I would just disappear like I'd fallen off a cliff. And time would be like, would stand still. And that's when all of a sudden I had all this imagery and all this like spontaneous knowingness come up. And what it, what came up to me was like, wow, you have no business being here in this role in New York. Like you are not meant to be here. You're misguided, right? And I now recognize that that was kind of my spirit saying, you're not aligned with your dharma, your calling. And so it's incumbent upon you to get aligned. And so I started asking questions. Like, if I'm not meant to be, you know, a, a CPA or go back and be part or part of or run the family business, which are the stories that I had been telling me, then what am I meant to be? Who am I, right? Back to that who am I discussion. And the answers I kept getting was warrior. Warrior kept coming up. You're meant to be a warrior and lead as a warrior. And I didn't really think I even heard about the SEALs at that time, right? Because they were a very secretive organization, pre-internet. And when I started to contemplate this idea of me being a warrior, and maybe there's something out there I should be doing that's aligned with that, I stumbled across one night, this is again another example of synchronicity, I stumbled across a Navy recruiting office and I saw a poster on the wall. And the poster, it didn't say anything about the Navy SEALs, it just said, be someone special across the top, and it had imagery of Navy SEALs doing cool shit. You know, jumping out of airplanes and crawling up to mm-hmm. the beach with a knife in their mouth and that kind of stuff. And I was like, I was transfixed because I was like, that's it. That's me as a warrior. And none of that busy would have happened had I not sat down and learned how to meditate and kept practicing it every day. I ended up doing 20-minute morning practice. I bought myself a little wooden bench, which I'm standing on right here. And... Um, the process, and especially what we now know about neuroplasticity. So I'm a 20, 21-year-old guy, and I'm meditating every day. And my brain just changed in so many ways. But more importantly, it opened me up at those, you know, the integrated five-mountain five level, where now I was able to make decisions informed by my spirit or informed by my more higher self, my essential nature. I was by far from being a fully integrated human being because I hadn't done any of that shadow work that we talked about earlier. But I think this goes back to the donut concept, and I'm glad that you went there. So when I read in your book that there was some line that essentially said when you found that practice, it was the first time that you feel like you actually found yourself, you met yourself for the first time, which my follow-up question from that when I first read it was, what do you think is to account for the reason that people can end up 20 and have no idea who they are, societally speaking? What do you think are the the biggest contributing factors to the vast majority of us maybe even getting to the death place without truly knowing sure. ourselves? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is the uh, distractibility of the human mind and the awesome just you know, shiny things all around us, especially with this smartphone that we have in our pockets or in front of us. And so we never, people aren't um, given the opportunity to be quiet. And the second thing is the way we've organized ourselves as a society and culture is to cloister in these big cities or these, you know, towns, neighborhoods, and disconnect from nature. And now you can see there's a movement really where you can get certified. Instead of to become yourself. Right there's kind of like these are all the things you can become rather than right. learning yourself, to go learn inside and learn how to are, be yourself. Really, yeah. Go out and you know become a be it or do do be a CPA and a business guy and mm-hmm. be a successful entrepreneur and make a lot of money and look perfect on social media, and that's all fine and good. But if you don't know yourself, you know if you don't do the work of self awareness or examine your life, like Socrates said, a, a life unexamined is not worth living. It's mm-hmm. a pretty bold statement. You're basically saying this, slow down and look within and you'll find the real answers, the universal truths and, you know, what you're really meant to be doing on this planet and why you're here. The answers are inside of you. But if you keep looking out here grasping for the, like the monkey mind, well, you're the monkey always grasping for the banana. Well, we're taught to do that from such a young age in school. You don't know. You have to learn it in a book. You don't know. You can't just, you can't just tap into your inner knowing and just know things, which right. I know that you've had happen to you before. Right. It's happened I, I to me, lo- too. I know that there's some movement now 
you know, back in 85, there was practically none, except for a few Americans who had ventured over to India to learn yoga. And, and they were out there, but they certainly weren't where I was in upstate New York. And so in the big city, I was very, very fortunate, like and very grateful that I stumbled into a Zen master and started training at that age. Um, because you have to really look for that. And I just spontaneously found it, right? I was lucky. Um, or, or, or it was perfectly aligned. Right. It was just meant to happen, right? Because I was meant to be a warrior and then a teacher, which now I'm you know, fulfilling that kind of dharmic role. But the other thing is, so, so we have people kind of congregating, disconnected from nature. We have people who are always distracted, and, and the human mind is you know, geared toward negativity, like we started this conversation with, and always grasping for something that's going to bring comfort, right? And so it's moving towards something that's comfortable, which isn't always good for you. Right, and often repetitive. It could repetitive. be food, it it's could be alcohol, know. it could be drugs, it could be just gossip, it could be anything that's going to prevent you from looking or feeling those shadow emotions, which are the real deal, which are really happening and need to be looked at. And then we have our educational system, which basically, you alluded to this, but it, it, it vaunts the IQ and cognition over any other type of intelligence. So no training in emotional intelligence, no t- training in intuition or spiritual intelligence, and now no training in physical intelligence either in most schools. And so you're just getting basically a bunch of information that is largely irrelevant by the time you graduate, dumped into your head. And is backed up with no meaning. You know how right. to regurgitate it, but you can't, right. you don't understand it in a tangible way right. at all through any sort of experience. So there are, like, I was, you know, here we are in 2020, and there are, there's now enough uh, people out there that understand what we're saying who are starting schools or transforming education. And, you know, there's, it's really, really cool to see schools that bring in meditation, and yoga, and science. My daughter's school has CrossFit in the mornings. I, every That's time so I cool. drop her off, I see the coach out there making these tiny little humans do burpees. I'm right. like, yeah, coach. Woo. Melanie, who's our, one of our seal fit coaches, you met her earlier. Mm-hmm. She, um, she teaches a seal fit workout once a week to the entire school that her daughter is at. And um, she's been teaching them box breathing and the power of feeding the courage wolf, you know, just positive self-dialogue, and like our version of kind of CrossFit, functional fitness and burpees, and you know, and they love it, and the kids are being transformed. Really cool. It is pretty cool. Anyway, so there is some good help, right? Even though things seem really dark and chaotic and like conflict seems to be brewing everywhere, I think the future is really bright because more and more people are having these conversations like you and I are having busy and more and more people are starting to take it seriously and starting to do the inner practices of integration, starting with you know, getting their bodies physiologically back in balance and sleeping better and fueling better and you know, becoming vegetarians and eating close to the earth or at least eating farm to table or in your case, home to table. <laughs> Not yet, but soon, soon. very soon. Right, and uh, all that is really good for Mother Earth. And the more people, I read a stat a few weeks ago. It said if um, if everyone ate one less hamburger a week in America, it would be equivalent to taking 36 million cars off the road. So, you know, just think of that. If you just become yeah, a flexitarian where you eat less red meat and chicken, which would have an enormous positive benefit, at least mass-produced, I'm talking about mass-produced mm-hmm. crap, not, again, farm the table, and that's the right direction. But if we could um, begin to nibble away at the mass production of beef and chicken and pork, like, it would transform the earth because those are the biggest contributors to degradation of soil and, and groundwater and carbon dioxide. And then, of course, you know, tearing down rainforest to create new land mass for the these cows. So if we take the supply or the demand away... You don't think it's a good idea to let Big Pharma buy parts of the Amazon to, air quotes, protect it? Yeah, oh, that's right. Come on. Great idea. Right. Anyways, I got off on a little tangent, but my point is that there's a lot of good happening because it is happening. I agree. It, it, we'd like to see it happen a lot quicker, but you know, we have this idea called a tipping point. A lot of this stuff is kind of hidden beneath the surface. There's a lot of young entrepreneurs who either have evolved to a world-centric perspective or maybe like indigo children who come in like that Mm -hmm. and they're not willing to go down the 
path of our industrial age models. And so they're just like creating new models and new ways. And they're creating companies that have a world-centric impact as opposed to just like trying to make money. And that is such good news because, you know, just give it another 10 or 15 years and these people are going to be in all leadership positions. And the buying habits are going to be really, really different. You know, you're going to have much more people who just say, you know what, I know oil is still cheaper, but I'm not going to do it just because, right, I don't want to impact the environment that way. And I know that a hamburger tastes good, but I'm not going to eat it, all the, at least all the time, because I know what affects it Did you it know all. that I ate a hamburger before I came here? <laughs> Where'd you get it? Was it in even, and out? Or? I don't even want to tell you. Yes, it was in and out. Well, now we got some talking to do. I wouldn't typically do that. I'm, I am paleo, but typically I wouldn't. Yeah. Wouldn't go fast. I was it. until last year, and now I'm, I'm vegetarian. Actually, I should say that I'm more of a pescatarian. I eat fish once in a while, mm-hmm. like once every two weeks, just to get some of that. I mean, interesting and, note here, because I actually, Gordon and I were just talking about this in the car maybe a week ago or so. I actually was raw vegan for a quite some time. I don't know if how, how healthy that is. I would have trouble doing that. Here, My issue was that I felt fantastic, lots of energy. My spiritual gifts, or however we want to label them, they get too intensified when I'm a vegetarian and I'm no longer able to be a functioning human being. So I have to eat little bits of grounding sustenance for me to be able to keep yeah. my human yeah, life I together. That. I feel more grounded when I eat meat, too. Yeah, root, root veggies can usually do the same same. Right, right. So a couple questions to wrap up, because I don't want to keep you here forever. When we're talking about... When we're talking about humanity and where you think humanity is going, I like to, I think I always talk about how the micro mimics the macro, right? If we, like how we are as individuals and the two wolves that we have to face, feed one, hopefully sort the other, that's going to determine where we go individually in our lives. If you look at humanity as a collective having two wolves, what do you think on a more global humanitarian scale we need to do to feed the courage wolf? to be able to keep moving forward in the positive direction? Well, this is a big part of staring down the wolf. I don't think there's any individual leader who has the capacity to deal with the complexity in the VUCA world, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity that exists today with the confluence of all these new technologies and the acceleration of technologies and artificial intelligence and all that. So I have this thought that the team is the new leadership unit. And, and just like Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. So each individual leader or someone who's got the skills to organize the efforts of a team, you know, to do good work, first does the work on himself and then brings it to the team. But then the team, the culture of the team has an identity of its own and an energy of its own. And then the team takes it upon itself to be the change that they want to see in the world. So now you multiply this across every organization or every, you know, fifth plateau integrated organization, and you have millions of individuals working together as world-centric integrated leaders who are not separate and who are um, doing things that are going to help bring healing to the world. And that's where you're going to find this tipping point. And I think, you know, like I've heard Wilbur say, we need, you know, but 10% of the world global population to be at this integrated perspective that we're talking about is world-centric, where all their actions, all their thoughts, all their work through their teams is going to the benefit of humanity and Mother Earth to bring healing, to bring health, and uh, to restore, you know, biosystems, ecosystems. And at that stage, you still need, you know, the protectors to protect against lower levels of individuals or cultures that haven't quite, you know, evolved there. The dance of life and the dance of shadow will continue to go on, but you'll have a, a significant portion of the global population, you know, close to a billion or more, who will be leading our institutions who are at that fifth plateau and beyond. So it's going to be that individuals working through their teams, through their institutions, that'll transform. It's not going to be like, hey, we need we need Jesus to come back, right? Or we need a we need a world leader like 
Gandhi again. It's, yeah, it's not going to come from one it's not come person. From anyone it has to come or through a, small a ripple cabal effect. Of really smart people like Elon Musk or some techno futurist. No, it's going to be everyone listening to this, everyone listening to this podcast who takes action in their families first and then their, their work environment, their work teams. And then uh, you'll see this accelerated growth, you know, really quickly when everyone comes together because the team is, is such a rich opportunity to grow that people really quickly can accelerate beyond wherever they're at and transcend and include, eradicate shadow, negative conditioning, and, you know, let their positive qualities flourish and then affect real change. And you're seeing little, like I said, bits and pieces of it, like the conscious capitalism movement is a great example of that. Not quite at an integrated plateau, but it will be. But heading uh, in that direction. Heading in that direction. Which brings me to just the last point. When you say that you feel that it's going to come again, individual to kind of your collective group and then create this ripple, do you feel that there are inherently power structures, especially in like the political sphere yeah. globally, that would prevent the right people from ever being able to get into the right positions as I, it stands today? I think that's a, um, that's a challenge, but nothing is permanent. Right? We know this from yoga. Nothing's permanent. No structure, not even the human body. And all those structures that were built in the industrial age uh, and some lingering from way before, like this church structures, look at what's happening to them. They've lost a lot of They're moral imploding. authority, mm -hmm. credibility. They're fraying at the seams. And these new entrepreneurs are looking at those structures and saying, you know what, I can do better with six people in a garage, like with Uber or you know, Lyft. I can do more. I can change the world more. You know, if I develop a business built on the blockchain that doesn't connect to that old system. And so you're going to see parallel systems. And the old system is going to fight like hell to maintain its power structures. And that could lead to conflict. And it could lead to a lot of unpleasantness. And the other side of that is going to be a much better structure that is hard to really pin down because we can't quite understand it from our perspective yet. But it'll be more of an integrated structure with a lot less of a heavy hand. You know what I mean? It, it won't be centralized. It'll be much more decentralized. It won't have autocratic top-down leadership because that's very much of an industrial age thing. It'll, it'll have decentralized leadership, decentralized <laughs> structure. The um, individual and the team... Which I totally agree, and I feel like our world is actually currently heading in slightly exact opposite direction of incredible centralization. Well, that, it does seem that way, but when things break down, there's a push back against it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seems like it gets stronger momentarily, but then it all falls apart. Okay. That's my view, anyways. I think... I like it. You know, it, you know, it might be... I'm not suggesting that, like, the United States of America is going to crumble and something will rise in its place. I'm just suggesting that by the time we have that 10% tipping point... You're going to have a lot more, you know, integrated people who are running for office, who are loosening their grips and understand that, you know, government, you know, maybe has really been part of the problem and starting to get out of the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have this little uncomfortable truth that, you know, our government is built upon debt and that can't last forever either. And so when that breaks down, then the government will have to maybe shrink in size and maybe go back more to regional or, or back to the states having a little bit more power. And so a lot could change, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years. It's a very interesting time to be alive. It is. And may I'm, we live in interesting times. I know. Said, and we do. I'm, I'm, I know for certain I chose to be here exactly right now. And it's funny that you kept talking about this experience of trying to figure out who you are because actually... I have this tattoo that says I remember who I am on my wrist because oh, I had this very definitive moment through many parallel practices that you're talking about where I very clearly one day was like, oh, hi, this is this yeah. is actually Hello, who I am. This busy. is the mission or, template I came here I'm to carry out. I'm currently occupying this body and calling myself busy, but nice right? to meet the real me. To the point where I've actually gone to make a table reservation before and I'll count and I'm like, mm -hmm, okay, we're three. And they're like, ma'am, do you have somebody joining you? And I'm like, three? She's That's like, ma'am, I only see two people. I'm like, but it's me and other me. <laughs> there was an integration process that took a, took a second. That's pretty funny. I like that. I'm really grateful for hearing your perspective. I could talk to you for hours, but I know that you're a busy man. Thank you for coming onto my podcast. And for those of you that are ready and waiting to read this book, it is called Staring Down the Wolf. When does it come out, Mark? It comes out March 2nd. So okay. it's pretty quick. It's so like right around the corner. And uh, we do have a pre-order 
page, you know, if someone feels inclined to support the pre-launch yeah, because I'll, I'll as put we it talked about earlier, too. that helps us get on the New York Times bestseller list, which helps get it more exposure. So it's not all Machiavellian, even though it feels that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels I, like third you, plateau. You seem like a well-intentioned made, man. <laughs> if it doesn't get the New York Times bestseller list, I, I'm quitting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so staringdownthewolf.com, right? If you want to get a signed copy, um, my team even had this crazy thing. and said, if, if someone buys a thousand books, you'll go out and do a keynote for them or a training. And I'm like, okay. Oh, is that all Who's I had to do to get you to come books? to my I mean, event? I have like three people are buying a thousand <laughs> books for their organization. I'm like, wow, that's a really cool idea. That's awesome. I'm going to be busy. Not to mention, it sounds like from what we talked about, really, the, the primary pathway to really change the world is likely going to be through conscious capitalism. Right. So everyone out there, I know I've got tons of followers and listeners that have companies that are entrepreneurs. So go get this book. And thank you so much for being on, Mark. Thank you, Busy. Really appreciate you. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.